concerned that we're living in a world that's filled with fears. We're living in a world that is nation is rising up against nation. Kingdom is rising up against kingdom. A society that's turning into a, a, a petri dish of social engineering, trying to change what's good into evil and evil into good. Are you concerned for this as a Christian? Come back next week, I'll be speaking out of Habakkuk on that message. I was going to speak about it today, but I knew it would be a little light today, and there would be a lot of people gone for Father's Day, so I would be preaching a different message today. But if you are concerned, like I am concerned, if you are concerned about what you see as a believer in this world, like Habakkuk was, and he cried out, Oh Lord, how long? How long before you act? Come back next week, we'll speak about that, amen? But for today, turn to John chapter 3, I want to speak some about being born again. Let's have a sort of, uh, how can you say a reintroduction into the understanding of being born again. Could you ever get tired of finding out something new about being born again? Have we found out everything there is about being born again? Do we know we need to be born again? Are you glad you are born again? Praise God. Let's speak about that out of John and Ezekiel today. Uh, We'll start in John chapter 3, verses 1 to 15. I will give a moment. Oh, there it is. I'm going to open up a bottle of water. I'm the pastor. I can take a sip. Tell you how good that was. Drinking the living water. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. A ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So so it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. But you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Let's pray. Father God, we just ask you to breathe on this sermon today, God. I pray that you open up our minds to understand the scriptures, Father God. Let us feast on the beauty of the new birth, Father God. Let us see from a fresh perspective, Father God. Remind us of just how incredible it is to be born again. Remind us of how necessary it is to be regenerated from the dead, 
to being alive so that we can see and enter and be saved, Father God. Let us never forget the miraculous nature of the new birth, that it's because of you, God, and because of the sacrifice of your Son and the power of your Holy Spirit, sinners can be saved. So we ask you, God, to be here as we go through this sermon in Jesus' name. Before I start, I just want to mention that, unfortunately, me and Terry do have to run out today. So uh, when I run out, it's not because I don't love you. We love you very much. But I, we do have an engagement that we have going to the city. So please, I uh, just want to give you a heads up on that, okay? When we come to being born again, this is probably the major text of scripture of the necessity. And I want to emphasize that, the necessity of being born again, of this spiritual rebirth, uh, being born from above, or being born of the Spirit, depending on how, what translation you are reading. Though Jesus teaches clearly that if a person is not born of the Spirit, then that person can either see, that means understand or perceive the kingdom of God, or enter it and be part of or be saved in the kingdom of God. Unless something happens on the inside, the spiritual birth. Jesus gives us an outline, but he really doesn't give us any real depth to what's really going on here. Ezekiel, the prophet, gives a greater depth to the substance of the new birth, and I'm going to speak about that too today. But I want to speak about what Christ is speaking about here, this outline that Nicodemus should have known as the teacher of Israel. He was the top teacher, but yet he knew nothing about the necessity of being born again. He did not know his scriptures. There are a lot of people that do not know their scriptures. Nicodemus didn't understand it. But what he doesn't teach is what it means to be born again. What does it look like? Nicodemus asks how... But Nicodemus never said, what does it mean? What are you talking about? What does it really mean for me? He was caught up more in the how, or even the when, or the how, uh, but he wasn't caught up in the, the why. Why do I need to be born again? When we speak to the, the unconverted about the necessity of the new birth, they will go through all sorts of things, but they'll never come to this conclusion, why do I need to be born of the Spirit? Why? What does it look like? Is it open to anybody's personal interpretation? It seems like anybody can tell you they're born of the Spirit. I know many, many New Agers love to use the term the new birth. This this new birth experience. They talk about it often. Many different ways in their writings. Many of my friends try to say that. The new birth is a familiar metaphor in many of their teachings. Roman Catholic dogma teaches that this happens at infant baptism. That God infuses grace into the soul of the child and washes away what? Original sin. At first glance, this teaching by Jesus seems vague and really open to anybody's interpretation. I want to make sure it's not open to anybody's interpretation. It's open to only the Holy Spirit's interpretation that we find in Scripture. And I want to make that clear tonight. It's not open to anybody's interpretation. Between Jesus' teaching in John's Gospel and Ezekiel's prophecy, which we'll speak about at the end, much can be learned about the new birth. And when we do, and we should, then we find a clear, encouraging understanding of what it means to be born of the Spirit, the necessity 
of being born of the Spirit. Though the Old Testament speaks uh, very clearly about the substance of being born of the Holy Spirit, and it gives allusions to why, only allusions, it's the New Testament teaching, specifically under Paul, that tells us why we need to be born again. It's because we're born and dead in sins and transgressions. We're not alive inside. We're dead. We're spiritually dead. Dead. No life at all. Nothing. Paul brings that out clearly. I'm not going to speak about that tonight, but I think most of us know that. In John 3, Jesus' emphasis is on the necessity of this supernatural event and some of the means to it. Ezekiel teaches what actually happens to a person when they're born of the Holy Spirit. And I'll spend a little more time on this later on. I just want to give a little outline into John 3 over here. Jesus' teaching on being born from above is is brought out in narrative form. It's a story. It's being played out in a real-life situation, and every part reveals something in this dialogue between the teacher of Israel and the Son of God who ascended from heaven and brings this heavenly doctrine, this heavenly understanding of what it means to be alive, what it means to be saved, what it means to be human. It, It takes Christ to come and tell us what life is all about. It's Christ that comes and tells us what the whole Old Testament is all about. Without the coming of Christ, the Old Testament is meaningless. He's the fulfillment of the law. He's the fulfillment of the Old Testament. The story highlights several key elements. First, Nicodemus. Nicodemus is not just thrown into the story because this man sneaking around at night and he has insomnia and he has nothing to do but bump into Jesus Christ. It represents something that we need to know. Nicodemus is the best man of the best religion. Judaism. It's the only true religion there was. And he's not just a Jew. He's the teacher of the Jewish law. But yet, even the best people under the best circumstances, like Nicodemus, also need to be what? All the religion, all their study, all their piety, all the people saying, Nicodemus, Nicodemus, Father Nicodemus, Rabbi Nicodemus, is what? It's meaningless. Absolutely meaningless to God. It's interesting that this man comes and makes a statement that you must be uh, someone sent from God because no one can do these things unless God is with him. And Jesus doesn't give him an explanation. He just comes out and says, you need to be born again. He answers a question he never asked. He's using it as an object lesson, an opportunity to teach the necessity of the new birth to the teacher of Israel. Because if he needs it, then guess what? Everybody needs it. And why is this? Because Nicodemus was still in darkness. Nicodemus, as Jesus just said, what is born of the flesh is what? What's born of this world is what? And we know flesh and bone cannot inherit what? The kingdom of heaven. You cannot do it. Nicodemus needs to be born again. Both these elements speak of the spiritual darkness and sin ever since Adam and all human generation has been fallen into. They're born of the flesh. There is no spiritual life since Adam and Eve, our first parents, fell into sin. Everybody is born in sin and needs a supernatural work of God 
to bring them close to God. So that whether rules or regulations, laws, no matter how sincere a person is, no matter how sincere Nicodemus is, or any Jew is, or any good human being is, any religious person is, they could never ever satisfy God ever. Only a heart-to-heart personal relationship can do, and that needs to be restored by Christ. Being made alive from being spiritually dead is an act of grace. It is all of the Lord. No man can do it. Only man can say, I need you, Lord. And we're going to speak about that a little bit. This is a relationship where one loves the Lord personally for what the Lord has done for him in salvation. This is truly heart-to-heart religion. It's a religion of, I love the Lord with all my heart, strength, soul, and mind. The agency of this supernatural rebirth, this this bringing something that was dead back to alive is the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. His work on the hearts and the minds of humans is an invisible work that Jesus compares to what? What's the metaphor? The wind blows to and fro. We feel the wind. We can hear the wind. We see the effects of the wind, but we don't understand it. We all, of course, now we understand a little more. But 2,000 years ago, they just knew it was, it was real. And it comes and goes mysteriously, and that's the, that's the point Jesus is talking about here. The Holy Spirit's work on the human heart is mysterious work. But nonetheless, it is a genuine work by the Holy Spirit. But this work is also powerful, like the wind. It is producing something. We cannot see it, but we know it's there. We can feel it, and we can see its effects. But really, at the end of the day, it's this this hidden spiritual operation. Being born again is a hidden spiritual operation with an outward manifestation. Like the wind. The means to this spiritual hidden operation, the means to this end is the preaching of Christ and his cross. He says, if I be lifted up, this is an Old Testament reference of a supernatural work of God of healing people physically out of Numbers 21. Jesus is using it now for spiritual healing, spiritual cleansing. The reason we know the difference between what Christians speak about being born again or what the New Ages teach about a rebirth and unfortunately even what Catholicism teaches about their rebirth at baptism is that all this supernatural inner work of the Holy Spirit and I want everybody to take this truth home with them. All this supernatural inner work, this hidden work this hidden power of the Holy Spirit that takes place on a human being's soul is always in connection with the preaching of Jesus Christ. Nothing else. It doesn't happen apart from Christ being lifted up in his genuine work at the cross 2,000 years ago. And guess what we do every time we get together and we preach and we teach and we pray? We are, what are we doing? We are... Again, lifting up Christ in our preaching. We're lifting up Christ in his cross in our teaching, not in the mass. We are doing it in the preaching of the gospel, the good news. 
That's where Christ is found now. He's found in the preaching and teaching of the gospel. And with that comes the supernatural wind of the Holy Spirit. It is not something me and John go in the back and we stir ourselves up in a mad frenzy to ask the Holy Spirit to come and to do something. It is not that. But we will go back there and get on our hands and knees and pray that God backs up the preaching of the gospel and that we do. And we do it. And we do it because he knows and I know and every true and faithful minister knows that unless the Holy Spirit comes and backs up the preaching, nothing will ever be done. That's it. That's how we know. How do you know you were born again? I heard the message of a risen Savior that once was dead for my sins and came alive for my justification. That's how I know. It's objective truth about Jesus and his work that brings me into the subjective reality of the Holy Spirit. No objective truth, no objective teaching. Whatever work is going on is not of the Holy Spirit. I don't care how super spiritual it looks. No matter. Don't ever be fooled by the counterfeits. Ever. It has to be given because Christ has been uplifted up. A clear, and nothing will substitute for a clear and articulate expression and explanation of why Christ died. Nothing. Ever ever will do than a clear articulate expression and explanation of why Christ died and just as important is our personal need for him our personal need how important that is I remember when I was saved I remember when it felt like the preacher was preaching as I was the only one in the room And I could hear God saying, Brian, you must be born again. I heard my name in my heart. I knew God was personally speaking to me. It was a personal encounter. I wasn't swept up with a bunch of people. No, I knew I needed to be saved. It wasn't like, oh, you know, I know someone who needed that message. No, that was the day I knew I needed the message. It became personal on that day. And this gives the sinner an opportunity to believe in him for themselves. Not in water, not in infant baptism, your family gets you saved, or the cult, the, the church gets you saved, or the new birth, the new ages is a, it's a cultural thing. The, the, the culture, society is going through this metamorphosis and the, this new birth experience. No, 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 no. It is a personal experience when someone personally hears that they need Christ and that Christ personally died on the cross as a substitute for their sin to appease the wrath of God and to save them from eternal destruction. And all of a sudden the light goes off and you're like, Lord, come into my life. It's personal. Jesus in this text taught the necessity of the new birth five times. He gave the reason for the new birth because sinners produce sinners. Two sinners get together and they have little babies and we got little babies around here. Guess what they are? They're little sinners. They're cute. I like them a lot, you know. But they need to be saved. 
And their mom and dad can't do nothing for them except intercede and show them the gospel in their marriage. That's it. That's all. Jesus also talks about the agency that brings this work about. And that's the Holy Spirit through the metaphor, the illusion of the wind. We don't know. It's a supernatural work. You, you cannot put the Holy Spirit in some, some kind of methodology. This is how he's going to work. We get in some kind of huddle. We rattle ourselves and hit our head and then the Holy Spirit's going to come. No. I can preach and preach and preach with very little outward effect. Maybe only a couple of people get saved. Nothing to do with me. That happens to do with the the Holy Spirit blows to him, not me. And one day you can come up with a, the, the nastiest cold and you can have a flu and the chills and haven't slept for days and come up and preach the weakest message you ever thought you preached and they flock to the altar to get saved because what? It's the Holy Spirit blowing to and fro. Not by our methodology, not how great I am. Of course you want, we, we, we need to live it up. We need to live according to the gospel. The point is this, it is not us, it's always the Holy Ghost. It is always the Holy Spirit in conjunction with the truth of Jesus Christ. He also taught the means of this. The reason of the new birth was sin is the flesh produces flesh, that is it. The agency is the Holy Spirit. The means of it is what we already said, is the preaching of Christ. If I be lifted up, sinners need to see Christ. Even saints need to see Christ in their sanctification. There's not much of a difference between salvation and sanctification. It's the same grace that saves you. It's the same grace that sanctifies you. The same faith that brought you into salvation is the same faith that changes you in sanctification. There's no difference. It's not like I'm saved by faith and all of a sudden i got to muscle it up and I'm going to change my life. It ain't going to work. The means to this is preaching. It has always been preaching. That's why Paul told Timothy, preach the word. Preach it. Don't shut up. Continually to preach and preach it louder and stronger and never hold back. The Holy Spirit will back it up. And of course, he also teaches in, this, in verse 15 that whoever believes, that's our part. It's hearing with why. Paul says, Did you receive the Holy Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with? Hearing with faith. That's the whole thing. You don't have to talk somebody ever into being saved. Whatever you do, don't make the mistake that you've got to talk people into being saved. You might as well talk to the corpse that they need to get out of the coffin and get a tambourine and look alive. Look alive, you corpse. They don't never, don't knock yourself out. Something happens on the inside, they hear it. He died for me. They accept it. And they're born again. The prophet Ezekiel tells us what all that means on the inside. I just gave a, uh, 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 just the parameters, the boundaries. The scaffolding of what it means to be born again. But the, the prophet Ezekiel really gets onto the inside. He gives us what it means on the inside, our minds and our fictions and our wills. Let's turn to Ezekiel uh, 36. 
for some people, you might have never heard a message like this. It's a, it's a primer in, on being born again. For others, it's a refresher. But no matter what, if you're truly born again, it's always refreshing to hear it. It's always stimulating. We're going to go to verse 22. Listen to the prophet Ezekiel speaking on behalf of God to a backslidden apostate nation, Israel. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know, and the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God. When through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. Starting in verse 24, 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart, and I will, a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in all my statutes and be careful to obey all my rules. The first thing I want to pour out over here is everything is attributed to Jehovah God. He says seven times, I will. He doesn't say, let's get together, let's talk about this. You know, I need a hand in saving you. You know, get your act together, repent first, and I'll come and I'll save you. It's nothing. All we see is God, the great I am, making a statement. I will. And do you know why? Because we can't. We can't. Remember what we're dead in? Sin and trespasses? You know what Jesus says in John 3? That we love the darkness. So these sins and transgressions, they're not like, oh God, save me from my sins and transgressions. Listen, we come to church loving our sin. When I came to church that day and I got saved, it wasn't like, man, you know something? I need to change my sin life. That's what I need to do. I need a savior. I'm tired of my wicked ways. None of that. At all. Came to church, just coming to church, and I realized I was a sinner who needed to be saved. And I'm grateful. And guess who did it all for me? I will. Starting in verse 24, he says this I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. First thing, like I just said seven times, it's Jehovah God that's doing all the work. And listen to our testimony. Listen to how the wind blows to and fro. Listen to how he plucked us out. He says, I will gather you. Where were you when you were saved? What was your religion you were darkened by? What was your addiction, your greed, your lust, my unbelief, my brokenness? What was the personal bondage we were in when God saved us? When you weren't looking for God, and I wasn't looking for God, and you were just doing your thing, and you you didn't realize you were in bondage, and you were in darkness. And guess who drew you to the Son? No one comes to the Father. No one comes to the Son unless the Father draws. 
And we learn a principle over here. It's not just about being drawn to Christ. How many people know you were drawn to Christ? Did you ever consider what you were drawn away from? Those idols you just spoke about? The other loves in your life? Do you think you came to Christ because you were tired of your sin? You were tired of consequences, but not the love of sin. Don't ever make a mistake about it. Even, even the Greek philosophers knew that men both hate and love their vices at the same time. Many of us gave up drinking, smoking, and other things. Why? Because the consequences were doing what? They were killing us. If we knew we can carry on and not get in trouble, we would have kept on doing what we kept on doing all along. Nothing would have changed. So it's not just being drawn to Christ. It's the great work of the Holy Spirit drawing us away from self-righteousness. I'm a religious person, and I'm not as bad as you. That is one of the most blinding elements in society today. Self-righteous traditionalism. I'm a, I'm a good person. Many people get saved and God has to draw them away from their high opinion of what? They're blind with self. Some of us come from different backgrounds. But I want you to take a moment. Where were you when God was drawing you to the Son? What bondage was he taking us out of? Do you know unless God stepped into your life personally, unprovoked, unsolicited, the wind blows to and fro, you'd still be there today? Yes. Or worse? It's where you've been. It's where I've been. That's the testimony. He plucked us out. I will gather you from the nations. I will gather you from your addictions, your blindness, your religion, your self-righteousness, your, your, your delusion. I'll, 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 I'll come and get you. I'll pluck you out and then I'll bring you to the sun. He goes on to say in verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. Do you understand what's being said here? I don't think you really understand when you first say that just how glorious this is. Some people do. They have this extraordinary salvation and it's just, it's, it's revolutionary. It's a metaphor for total forgiveness. The removal of all shame and guilt. Do you know that the non-believer right now is just, their conscience is getting more seared and more seared and more seared. Do you understand that the shame is being suppressed? It's real. No matter how hard the hardened heart is, no matter how callous the callous conscience is, there's still shame that if they don't come to Christ, they'll live with eternity for. Eternity, they'll live with their shame and their guilt. And when we come to Christ, all shame and all guilt that we were suppressing and we didn't even realize is washed away. And do you know what the greatest characteristic of shame and guilt in the Bible is? Greatest characteristic? Running away from God. What was the first thing Adam and Eve did when they heard the Lord God walking in the garden? And why did they hear? Because I was ashamed. Ashamed. I 
heard your voice in the garden. And I ran. I was afraid. I was filled with shame. And people don't realize that shame. That's why people won't like to get close to other people. A lot of people don't want to get close to the pastor. The, lot of, I'm not saying generalization. Be careful how I say that. But a lot of people, when they, they got things to hide and they're shame, they stay away from God. When a Christian falls back into sin, do you think they want to see the pastor walking down the path? Do they want to see four Christians coming out of the church with the Bible singing stems and they're crawling out of a rock? It's a shame. The last thing they want is to see us. I was in the park reading one day and there's a brother I led to the Lord and, but I didn't see him for a long time. He didn't return my text, my phone call, my emails. He, and there he is, he's jogging and guess who he runs into? He comes around the corner and guess who's sitting there? I'm doing great, Pastor. Doing wonderful. I've never said anything. Where does that come from? That's a sense of guilt. That's a sense of shame. He had to talk himself into it. But here's the point. Before we come to Christ, our conscience, that religious moral conscience that God gives us, is so desensitized. It's like it's like a beautiful antique that's been painted over for a hundred years. It's like you can see the framework of the antique, but you can't see the luster and the beauty of the antique. It's been painted over so many times. When we come to Christ, he takes away all the guilt, all the shame, all the pain. And there we are in all our luster, created in the image of God. Not running anymore. My back is not turned against God. It's me eyeball to eyeball now with God. That's what it means. I'll sprinkle you with clean water. This is what the blood of Jesus does. We sung about it today. He goes on to say, the great I am, and I will give you a new heart. And not just that, I will give you a new spirit and I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. <coughs> this verse is speaking about new religious affections for God. Jonathan Edwards called it that. Religious, true religious affections. A heart now that seeks to please God as being opposed to God. We, we seek after God. We desire God. We want to know God. We want to please God. We fail in every aspect, but we fail less and less and less. There's still a desire, even in our failure. Am I right? Do you know you know, now you know you want to please God in your failure? When you say, God, please be merciful to me. The, God, forgive me. Forgive me, I did it again. Forgive me, I'm at this 20 years. Forgive me, God. I can't. Forgive me, God. That's a religious affection. That's true repentance. Granted by the Holy Spirit. These religious affections bring a true joy. It's it's just there. Sometimes there's a joy. It's not produced by anything I've done. It's just just sitting there when I think about Jesus. And this, this hope about the future. This eternal hope that goes past the grave. It goes past sickness. It goes past old age. It goes, it goes past everything. And there's this sense of this hope. No matter what the world throws at me. And what's going on. There is this hope. It comes with this peace that transcends all understanding. There's this contentment in life. There's not this... You know, I missed out on life. I had a girl told me that once. Christian woman, Christian husband. I feel like I missed out. I feel like I need to find my life. And that scared me because the sinner needs to find their life, not the saint. 
What's missing in that relationship where you need to find yourself? What happened? We're found once and for all, never to be lost again. We're in the light, not in the darkness. We're in, we're in understanding, not in confusion. All of a sudden, we finally come into what true relationship is in within the body of Christ. A mutual love and a mutual faith based on not who you are or what you did or what you can give me, but a relationship based on what Christ has done for both of us in meeting our needs and bringing us together as a brother and sister eternally in Christ. One of the greatest things I've experienced when I was first born again is that I really felt for the first time I belonged to something big. Something natural, something that the soul longs for, but you can't find it in the, the gang. You can't find it in the clubs. You can't find it in the bars. You can't find it running with the guys. You don't, you don't find it in all those bad places. You find it in the body of Christ. True relationships, a genuine caring, a genuine being cared for, being concerned what God's concerned about, and then praying, turning away from formal, ritualistic, traditional prayers to crying out. I feel like I feel like I'm part of the Psalms, and I'm crying out to the Lord, and, and God is real, and God is alive, and He can hear me, and I want to speak to Him, who alone can rescue me. And worship, worship where you really are lifting up your heart to God with your hands and your voice. And at that moment you're worshiping the Lord, you're not thinking about spaghetti and you're not thinking about this and you're not thinking about your past and you're not thinking about your future. Your past is washed away and your future is all hopeful and you're just sitting there and you're worshiping God in spirit and in truth. No distractions. And then the word... It's not a bunch of loose religious sayings. The Bible becomes a book of God's narrative for mankind. It becomes God's personal word and love letter to me. This is what it means to be truly alive. He goes on to say, And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk with my statutes and and to be careful of obeying my rules. This is God. I will do this. God's saying, don't be careful to obey my rules. God is saying, I will make you careful to obey my rules. And he does that by his spirit. From the new heart. From the new conscience. To this new ability. This new moral spiritual power. To live for God. To live in contrary choice. Where my flesh used to say, Brian, this is what you do on Friday night at 8 o'clock. And now the spirit is saying, no, I don't do that no more. This is who I am. I'm a new creation in Christ Jesus. My life is not found in the bar. My life is found in Christ. My life is not hanging out with my old friends. My life is not found with the body of the living God. That's what it is. All things are new. The old has been washed away. There's this new power. And he says, I'll cause you to walk. I mean, Paul uh, gets behind this. It's how we live. I will cause you to live for me and me alone. And how does he do that? It's not by fighting toe-to-toe with the old ways. People say, you know, the flesh and the spirit. You know, Galatians chapter 5, you got this big war going on and you're getting punched all over the place and you wake up confused every day. Am I going to follow the flesh? Am I going to follow the spirit? Am I going to follow the flesh? That is not what it means at all.
God causes us to walk in his ways. 1 John 5, 3 says that his commandments are not burdensome. The commandment now is, an express, is a way I can express my love to God. I can walk in his ways. Because the other ways, God has removed my heart of stone. I can hear what he's saying now. I can perceive what he's saying. I have ears to hear and I have eyes to see that God's way is the best way. It's the sweetest way. It's, it's invigorating. The old way just... It's dirty. It looks dirty. It sounds dirty. It feels dirty. It feels like a, like a dog returning to its vomit. Like a pig playing in the mud. The Christian can't live there no more. We can fall into the mud every once in a while. Even the sheep fall in the mud. But the difference between the sheep and the sow, sheep can't live there too long. Pigs love it though. (laughs) They bask in the mud. God causes us to walk because he shows us clearly that the old way is really no way at all. And there's this wonderful song that we used to sing, I forget which one it was, but, you know, how he changes our heart to not to love those things of the world anymore. They, they grow strangely dim. What's that song? The power of his love, right? The power of his love. The things of the world grow strangely dim. You know, it's just not there no more. It just doesn't carry any weight. When the voice comes, it's like, you know, something that just, it's not enticing anymore. You know, it's just, it's not enticing anymore. That's how he gets us to walk in his way. Not with a threat. We didn't receive the spirit of the Lord. We received the spirit of Christ, the spirit of sonship. Not the spirit of fear. Perfect love casts out fear. I don't have to try to live by commandments now. God has put love in me. So whatever God, 10 commandments, 10,000 makes no difference. I love the Lord disobedience to God has no reward at all, no allure to it at all, even though we could fall into it. Are you with me? Are you understanding what it means to be born again? Are you happy you're saved? Are you happy the Holy Spirit is in you? That he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it? Do you know he hasn't given up on you? Do you know he doesn't know how to give up on you? Do you know that Jesus Christ took the full wrath of God? Do you know even if God wanted to be mad at you, he couldn't? Christ took it all. Christ took it all. And then he says, you'll be careful to obey. Careful to obey. There's a new priority in the Christian's life. The Christians are a morally careful people. We used to be morally reckless. But that's the whole transition. The whole transition from darkness to light. Morality, virtue, chastity, cleanness, purity. These are, these are words that the world doesn't want to hear about anymore. But to the believer, this is what we want. We're morally careful people. We watch our step. We watch our thoughts. We watch our actions. We watch our desires. We're, we're careful of our intentions. We're, we do this soul-searching thing at all times. So, well, you know, Lord, that, that, was I right there? What's going on over here? What am I, and we go to, am I alone? That's what the Holy Spirit does. 
We're going through this natural soul-searching thing all the time, not to find ourselves, but to be careful that we're walking right with God. And when I find out areas of my life that, you know, something's not, and I'd be right, I seek counsel, I seek confession, I look out, I say, God, I got blind spots over here, let me speak to a brother in Christ, let me speak to my wife, you know, I want to be careful of walking your ways, but you know something, I'm not sure what's going on over here, would you give me some help? Are you with me? Yes. Where Jesus speaks about the necessity of the new birth, Ezekiel really drives the point home of what it means. Through that prophecy. And of course that was first fulfilled when they came out of exile in the Old Testament. It was like nothing like it, was, it had to be compared to a new birth. Because there they were. They were entrapped by the Babylonians and for 70 years. And all of a sudden they come back fresh and new like a new people. And that was the first installment of this covenant. But really the real one is when we come out of darkness and into the light. And we're born again. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the living word of God. That's always, oh God, thank you for refreshing our souls. I'm refreshed by studying again. I'm refreshed by preaching it, Father God. I'm excited for you, Lord God. I thank you, Father God, whether we're two days in the Lord or two months in the Lord or two years in the Lord or 20 years or or four or five decades saved. It's always fresh. Always invigorating, always exciting, Father God, and brings our eyes to tears of the great work of Christ and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. In his name we pray.